name Aaron Kong. I've been I've been working out since I was in fifth grade. I just randomly started one day because some of my friends in in uh, elementary school were working out. Haven't stopped then. Besides, there was a two year gap when I was a freshman in high school to junior in high school, and for two years I completely quit exercising and I played World of Warcraft for two years straight. So in the span of in the span of four years, I had over 400 days in the video game alone in four years so and then after that i started working out again junior year um but i think i like i like as far as like you know genetics go i'm pretty lucky so like when i was young i would I, I, my nickname was double d's because I, I had like pretty big boobs as a seventh grader and i was like benching 205 when i was in eighth grade going into high school um then in college, this is where I met you, obviously, yeah. my, my sophomore year, your freshman year. And then we were like, well, we got to recruit this guy to be part of the, uh, the, the bro squad at the gym. But yeah, just been lifting a long ass time. Um, and then, you know, kind of here to talk about just different lifestyles. Uh, as someone that's not really, like, I'm into fitness, but I'm not into the fitness culture and the, the business of fitness and, you know, the, the, uh, the shows and and like maxing out everything so you know i think it's like maybe a little different of a of a conversation we'll have yeah no actually i think it's more interesting because like what you mentioned that you're not into like maxing out your body and like going to the extremes but actually you kind of have done those things before just in like completely different ways so it wasn't about like getting as lean or as strong as possible it was more in like ways that <clears> other <throat> people might not be as familiar with and just like doing that the weird experiments with yourself to try and push your body in different ways. But also obviously like you have a life that has nothing to do with fitness. Like your normal job, your normal career is not fitness related. That's, you know, more so right. you're by trade a nerd, right? So like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the thing. And like for anybody who's not watching this, Aaron is the most jacked random Asian that you'll ever see. <laughs> but the first time I ever saw, you, you know, I, I walked into Jesse Owen South at OSU <clears throat> and I just saw this, super jacked veiny ripped asian <laughs> just bit, like I mean, benching 315 or something like that it was something ridiculous like that i don't think i've ever inclined bench 315 i did i did 295 for six on incline but like i don't even bench 225 anymore yeah it was like half the size of what it used to be it was like something ridiculous like that and then we trained together and then you just like started mooching all of my swipes for like the next two semesters or something like that. <laughs> I, had to, I had to pay for all of Aaron's food for like the next three oh, years. Oh, that's so, oh my God, swipes. I remember those days. I was always like trying to find like a girlfriend to date that had swipes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, I, I think in general, it is going to be a good conversation because um, like 99% of people who are into fitness <clears throat> and, like, enjoy training enjoy that aspect of like bettering themselves like they, it's not their job it's not their profession they want to do it more so casually but they also mm -hmm. like the aspect of self-improvement so there has to be that interesting balance and i think a lot of people struggle with finding that balance because everything is so catered towards the extremes it's catered towards like you have to make this your life and you have to dedicate all of these resources this time this money towards what you're doing that it should be a hobby um, or people just really, really struggle with even making it a hobby. Like they can't find that habit. They go in, they go out. And in general, it's like very much a struggle for them to do anything productive with it. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting. But before we even talk about fitness, I want to talk about your international travels. So oh, maybe I can screen share. I have a spreadsheet going. You have a spreadsheet um, going of all the places that you okay. travel to? 
Yes, it's not complete, but it is complete for the past like three years. So, so after after OSU, what was like that cadence of you traveling? Because I remember for a while, I was like, I could look on your Instagram and be like, okay, Aaron's in a new country this week. Like it, it felt like that. It felt like you were literally globe hopping. So you want to just kind of maybe high level walk through like what you did, why you were doing that, like how you were traveling the world and, you know, for how long you did it? Yeah. So after graduating, I basically did a year in Columbus kind of working corporate, whether it's like, you know, the credit industry or just logistics of, you know, like just crap unfortunate corporate jobs i was like you know i need to get out of here this is when i was like still like 21 22 it was like right time to do this and i was like all right what's the easiest way to get abroad where you can get a visa and you can work abroad without having these difficulties and have like relevant uh relatively decent income and this is the cliche and like most common choices to teach english the pay is significantly higher than anyone in those countries assuming you're in like a third world country whether it's like vietnam or china um, even Japan is like relatively high paying or even Madrid or Spain. Um, so I was like, all right, let me go. Uh, you know, I go to Vietnam. I was going to do China and then literally like right before I'm about to fly to China, I was like, you know, maybe I'll just stay in Vietnam and skip this flight. So I just stayed in Vietnam and started working there. And the pay there is like, you know, five or how long ago was this? Like 2015. Uh, so eight years ago. Um, back then the, the like entry salary was 17 an hour and the average minimum wage in Vietnam is around $140 a month in the big city. So you can imagine like, you're just making 10 X the, the average salary of, you know, someone there and like even someone graduating from college from a university in Vietnam is going to be making one quarter of what you're making. So you're living a really good lifestyle. And again, this is like very easy. There's no barrier to entry. If you speak English and you're not an idiot, you're good to go. Uh, and then I just basically did three countries like that. So I did I did Spain after Vietnam, and then I did Japan after Spain. <clears throat> and then in Japan, I was like, uh, when I was like, uh, um, you know, I should probably, you know, make more money, probably do something a little more serious. And I just shifted into crypto, which, you know, has its ups and downs, but currently has its ups. So that's good. Well, I mean, we could talk about that at the end, because I think that's an interesting point for both of us to talk about. But like, you, you did teaching, how were you able to bounce around? Like, did you find that there were troubles with you integrating into these different, like completely different cultures for one, because going from like Eastern, Eastern Asian culture to Spain, like that's a massive switch up. Did you have trouble like moving between some of these countries? Like, I feel like I would have a lot of trouble doing that, but like, was that relatively easy for you? And also just maybe do you want to say that like you do speak Chinese natively. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like so, you... so I've been to like China like 10 to 15 times. So it's not like uncommon for me to go somewhere. It's just random ass place. And I'm like, all right, like, you know, this is random and different, but it's no more different than another country would be. Um, so like moving to Vietnam has plenty of difficulties, but it's not that difficult because there are plenty of expats, expatriates who are basically expatriates i don't even know how to pronounce that but basically like all these foreigners living there there's like a community and they you know they don't help you but the knowledge and information is there if you just google it or you go on facebook and you, you seek help um getting an apartment's not super difficult if you have some money it's pretty easy rent's pretty cheap there 300 to 500 a month for like a really nice, um brand new unit um visas are pretty annoying to get sometimes but generally the staff at these um, like private schools will like walk you through everything. So foreigners are more or less handheld through the process. 
Uh, if they're just somewhat competent, you'd probably pretty much be fine. But, you know, as far as like culture goes, for me, it's like not as difficult because I'm Chinese and uh, I speak Chinese and, you know, I've been to foreign countries. So traveling to a country and like moving there is not the most difficult thing because I'm just like used to things being annoying. So if, 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 if your normal is annoying, then like it doesn't really bother you, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, again, like coming from me, I think I'm probably really really difficult because I've only lived in the US like I've only spent an extended period of time in the US I've never done so abroad so just thinking about like trying to integrate myself into uh an international culture with people around me that don't speak English natively or like maybe I'm just hearing I'm hearing a, a bunch of words a bunch of like languages that I don't know I don't understand yeah, people are just yapping and like, yeah, stuff, like yeah, yeah. chicken squawking you're just like what is that noise <laughs> I know I'm like looking at signs I can't read anything I feel like I would just be overwhelmed immediately, but like you obviously have at least some of that experience. So yeah. like how different is, I guess like the language barrier between like Chinese versus Vietnamese. Like for you, was that like, I can mostly pick up on those things or did you actually have to like somewhat learn Vietnamese almost from ground root? I know zero Vietnamese. I, know, I knew my address, um, which is 367 Pham Nu Lao, which is like the most busy street in Vietnam, one of the most busy streets in all of Vietnam. But most people, you know, they know what a tourist is. They know what tourists want. Like yeah. you just, you just kind of gesture and you imply things. Like if you want, if you're hungry, you, you know, just spoon your feet yourself. Yeah. Uh, if you need a toilet, you just, I don't know, point at your crotch or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, um, as an English teacher, you're usually teaching a language that you don't speak. Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to convey a message without speaking that language. So whether it's Japanese or, or Chinese uh, people or, you know, Vietnamese people or Spanish people, I didn't speak the language. So how do I, you know, convey a message or if it's like colors or numbers, you kind of just know how to gesture and how to like, you know, explain something without speaking the language. So that does help a little bit, but at the same time, it's like Taurus, you just, just do Taurus things and, you know, use a translator app or, you flash some money and you explain like you're trying to buy something. Uh, you, you point at, if you want triple meat, you just point at meat and you like, you know, I'll say three, right? Um, which doesn't always work. Like it's actually like, sometimes they just have no idea what you're saying and then they just nod their head. Cause it, you know, people don't want to act like, the, people don't want to come off like they don't know, right? So most people just nod their head and, and pretend. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's tedious, it's annoying, but it's not like, you know, you're not gonna be screwed entirely. No, yeah. And you did make a good point there. That I guess I hadn't even really thought of too much was that you're teaching a language that you or you're teaching a language to people who speak a language natively that you don't even understand. So like, it's very different than a bilingual class in the US where someone is a Spanish speaker, and they go to an English speaking school, there's typically right. a bilingual teacher that that will teach them English and Spanish, or they will have that crossover. So like, they're able to explain in a native language what this concept means in the foreign language, right? So like with you, you're saying you actually were not able to do that, right? So if you're- Yeah, and that's like the preferred method. As yeah, well. yeah, people yeah. Don't, people like, if you, if they knew I spoke Chinese, they would tend to be like, no, we don't want someone that speaks Chinese. Because sometimes people just default to the language to explain something yeah, and just yeah. like take the easy way out. But like the full immersion is the goal generally. That do, yeah. No, that's actually really interesting thinking about it like that. And also having a- be more abstract rather than like definitive and how you're saying something because it's very easy to say like 
this is a dog. But if you actually like reinforce that through like some kind of abstract concept, I feel like that's, that's going to like stick much better than if you just say dog, you know, like, right. so maybe that's actually a really interesting um, potential way of like teaching or just thinking about that. So no, man, I just branching off of that, going back to your travels, like what was the best place that you lived and taught? And what was the the worst, the, your least favorite? Yeah, so the best place I, I, I say this all the time is, is Japan, Tokyo. Tokyo is the best city in the world. Japan is the best country in the world. And I think like pretty highly of the USA. I don't think it's like, you know, God's gift to the world. But I, I would put USA like as a tier one country to live in. There are plenty of benefits. And, and I've lived in probably like six countries um, collectively, I suppose. So I think my opinion does have some merit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Japan, Tokyo is just the best because it's so clean, it's so efficient. So it's it's also one of the most crowded cities in the world, and the space is very little, and everything's compact. Um, but it's also the biggest city in the world. There are like forty million people in the city, and you know, I, I guess you put it in perspective. What's like New York has like seven million or something. Uh, so I, I think New York is maybe more like ten, but maybe I'm. It might be like eleven actually, but it's not forty, right? Yeah, so yeah. yeah. Imagine how busy New York City is, and then you think of Tokyo. That's like you know to put it in perspective. But it's also like Japanese people have in their culture a way of operating. So if you imagine the ocean and you imagine a, a school of fish, you've never seen a traffic jam in the ocean because these animals they just know how to intermingle with each other. So they're not like running into each other. They're not on different sides of the sidewalk. So in Japan, everyone is on the right side of the uh, escalator. They, they're, all, they're always on the correct side of the sidewalk. They're always waiting in line. There are lines everywhere. There are cute little things on the floor where if you're getting on the train, there's like a little diagonal line that tells you where to stand. Um, if you're in the USA, there are no lines, generally. You know, San Francisco train system, holy crap, like, don't go there. Like, look over your shoulder. I was, I was in, I was in uh, California for a few months over the past maybe, like, seven eight months and the train system just sketches me out there it's like i'm looking around and just someone's always looking like they're about to hurt me um but in japan it's just like so clean and organized and everything is just on point uh the checkout systems uh, you know everything's tap to pay um the train systems are perfect every little train is going straight to the center of a hub and there are also trains that go all the way out to the random little neighborhood like let's say you're in columbus and and you have downtown Columbus and, and a train goes to short north, you're also going to have a train that goes out to like Powell and Grove City. And, you know, you wouldn't think that there's the infrastructure for this, but there is. And it makes everything so convenient. You don't need a car in Japan. You can travel anywhere by bullet train and you can go from the north to all the way to the south in like, I don't know, maybe six to eight hours with just a bullet train. So you don't have to show up three hours before your flight because it's a train. And then you just get on and just zoop. 250 miles, I don't know, maybe like 150 miles, like just all the way down, no traffic jams. Um, you can balance a quarter on its edge on the train because it's so smooth. If the trains are delayed, they issue a national apology um, for like a three minute delay because they're so efficient with their timing. They just don't mess around. Even when there are snowstorms and the rail, the railroads are just destroyed, uh, they, they still make the effort to actually get the train to its destination. So like, I was stuck in a snowstorm, one of the worst snowstorms in recent history up in the, uh, like, northern Japan. I might have made up the 
one of the worst, but like I'm pretty sure it was really bad. It was like it was like like notably really bad. Yeah, that, yeah. that past um, winter there, and they're like issuing national like oh like they're gonna be all kinds of delays from this region up like like Hokkaido area, and they were still getting the trains across. Um, warning people would be a delay probably, but they were still making the effort. You know, in the USA, it would just shut down right. So this is something I really wish the states had just to like increase uh, efficiency throughout like travel and commuting. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, Japan is one of my favorites because everything's so efficient, everything's so clean. You look and see like outside of little shops where there's foot traffic, people are walking on sidewalks through these shops and like these alleyways. They are literally lint rolling the carpet in front of the shop to keep it clean, even though someone's gonna walk on it in two seconds. So like, that's how clean, uh, you know the Japanese people keep their keep their um, you know working space. What what but, what do you think the difference is there between Japanese culture and American culture that allows for a efficient and structured society to operate like that at such a mass scale? Like you said, the city of Tokyo is an order of magnitude basically larger than New York, New York, or even like you know <laughs> uh, Chicago, like a large U.S. city. But it seems like large U.S. cities suffer from a lot of issues that maybe Tokyo or like some of these other homogenized cities. I don't know if that's the best way to put it, um, that they don't suffer from some of those issues. Like you said, there's there's more of that like focus on cleanliness, focus on efficiency, focus on structure, focus on getting all of these things aligned in a way that makes the citizens lives easier and protects the citizens in a lot of different ways right so what do you think is that that difference if there is only one um so i don't know if i have the answer that would be accurate but i have a lot of assumptions so for example in japan guns are pretty hard to get but people do have guns and they are legal but there are very strict rules around them but these rules are not the same types of rules as you'll have in like uh, the USA. So in Japan, I believe in 2017 or 2018, there was one gun death in all of Japan. And this gun death was accidental, self-inflicted. So it's like really just I think it's just cultural. Yeah, yeah. So you can you can you can create laws and you know have all these implementations, but at the end of the day, it's the people that follow these laws and it's the people that you know are gonna be the uh, are gonna be you know the reasons things happen. So I think that one of the benefits, and sometimes this is not a benefit in Japan, is that everyone is Japanese. And you know what this means is like they're not really friendly on immigration. They don't really welcome refugees at all. And um, they aren't a fan of foreigners uh, too often either. So people in Japan really dislike when others break their norms. So you're not supposed to talk on trains loudly or ever be on a phone, like a phone call in Japan. Yeah. in a train station or no, on a train train stations are fine uh so like you know you'll see a foreigner you know just lounging around just talking on a phone and people just like damn it freaking foreigners um or you'll see foreigners on trains they sit in the sections they're not supposed to so there are like elderly people sections right or the handicapped and there are sections for women only and uh those sections you know should be respected and like there's a reason they have this and a lot of foreigners, they just see that and like, oh, like, they don't think it's a different section. So they just stand over there. Uh, and no one in Japan will say anything generally. But 
it is something that you know the Japanese people collectively dislike. But again, it's like it's like mob mentality in a good way because everyone hates when people ruin their space. It's like everyone keeps the house clean and then guests come and like make it messy. So basically, all the Japanese people like the order in their um, country. They like things being clean. They like thing people being respectful. And I I don't necessarily think it's because they're good and like the best people in the world. It's because they just love having their order in their country, and that's how they I think they keep things running uh, so smooth and clean. Yeah, like I mean, I, I've obviously never been to Japan, so it, it's kind of hard for me to speak on this. But just from what I know of Japan, like what I've seen, um, I, I know that their culture still is very uniform. Like they still really respect a lot of traditional values, a lot of those like, uh, like societal norms, respects, and things. I feel like that have more so kind of lagged in a lot of other international cultures like the u.s is, is a big example of that because we're very heterogeneous and like there are a lot of different cultures we're very much like a melting pot of of like international cultures in the u.s and it's not that that's a bad thing it's just that whenever things like that happen you can't get this more like uniform standardization of respect across everybody and across respecting other people's property respecting the country respecting the land that you're on because a lot of people just don't have that. Like it hasn't been built over millennia like the Japanese culture has, right? Like for every family <clears throat> that you look to in Japan now, they can say, oh yeah, like my grandfather's 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 grandfather grew up down the road, right? Like, so there is that innate respect for where they are and like the country that they live in. And I feel like even for me, like I'm a fucking white male and I'm, I mean, I'm European, but I mean, my family has been here forever, uh, at least for the most part. But um I, I definitely don't feel that like oneness or connectedness with like the US that like a Japanese citizen would feel with Japan. So, you know, I do think in like, in my mind, there is that, that aspect of like a homogenous country, a homogenous culture that tends to kind of like reinforce a lot of those traditional values. But again, not necessarily saying that like, having a blend is a bad thing, but I think that there are trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs that we experience is yep. people don't have the same respect for property, other people, things like that, that they would in, in Japan. But yep. no, I, I think that that's, that's a really interesting thing about living abroad that I definitely would not have necessarily noticed, but even something in talking about like speaking loudly on trains or speaking loudly in public places, not to go there but like even like chinese people oh no chinese people are actually the worst like i should just say it's like chinese tourists and chinese people probably have the worst manners of any nationality out there especially because there are so many chinese travelers uh because you know the chinese people actually have money to like go and like travel all the time uh and i have this story that i tell all the time to kind of like embody the the chinese auntie um like vibe. So I was in Taiwan in 2014, probably. And I'm getting on a train, waiting for the train to come and stop. And I'm about to get on. And this train is completely empty. There's no one on this train in Taiwan. And we're going to this beautiful gorge called Taroko Gorge. And it's in the mountains. And there's like blue water flowing through it. And, and on this train, there's one girl, this teenage girl, she's, she's coming and getting off the train. Now next to me, waiting to get on the train, is my brother, my friend, 
and three Chinese aunties. So like a Chinese auntie is like a term. It's like just like a 40, 50 year old Chinese lady. And and there are three of these ladies. And this this girl is getting off the train and they bum rush her. They push her back into the train to get a seat. Again, this train is completely empty. There's no one around. There's no outside of the train besides my brother, my friend and I. And these ladies just push this girl in and then she's just like, what the hell? And uh, my brother's like, yeah, this is why people tend to just hate Chinese travelers because they're so rude. And they don't even realize they're doing it because they're so used to fighting for these spots. So if you go to China and you, you get in a line and you try and buy a ticket, there's going to be this revolving circle to get to the front of the line. So literally there's a line and then it goes like in a circle. Everyone in the back of the line tries to scoot towards the front. And it's just this stupid circle that... Uh, it's like everyone trying to cut each other. So like when I'm in China, I'm, I'm like generally bigger than most people. I just, if someone tries to cut me, I just like step on their foot on accident. <laughs> and I just like walk over them. It's kind of funny, but um, that's that's Chinese tourists for you. And like in China, um, if you're out at dinner and you want to spit, you just spit on the floor in the restaurant. Even if it's a really nice five-star restaurant with carpets, you spit on the carpet. And then if you have a cigarette, guess what you do with the cigarette? You put it out on the carpet. Really? Yeah, it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of silly. And um, that, But that's just like, like, that's just normal. That's just normal in China. But in Japan, you can't even smoke cigarettes outside of designated smoking sections. Yeah. So you have to go into booths in Japan and smoke in a booth. Or there's like a box where everyone's crowded in like chickens and they're just smoking in this little box um and that's the same thing in korea too so it's just like very different culture basically like the japanese people think like hey if you're smoking this this affects other people it's annoying it smells so you have to go and smoke in like time out section pretty much um instead of inconveniencing other people so you can't just like walk and smoke on the sidewalk as you're walking i mean people do it yeah. but it's not very common it's just like the people that don't care about the rules which may exist as well no so now that we talked about japan being obviously your favorite place what about the worst your least favorite so place? The, wor the, the worst is easily vietnam because really? it's just i think the food kind of sucks and like oh my god i'm gonna get canceled for that like everyone's like i love vietnamese but i'm like well you haven't lived in vietnam and eaten there for a year so there is really good food there, of course. Um, you know, their basic traditionals are really good. Their pho, which I purposefully pronounce that way because I live there. And I think it's hilarious when people are like, it's not pronounced pho. I'm like, yes, I know, but that's why it's funny. Um, <laughs> any of your Vietnamese friends listening to this can agree with me. But, um, but the quality of the food is extremely low and the integrity of the food and like the people generally making the food, like they just aren't worried about it. Um, being contaminated or old they just want to sell it and deserve it uh there was a study that came out in 2015 or 2016 where it was found that 80 percent of all the noodles served in japan or in vietnam were found to be like un like not not uh healthy to serve like actually like the the, the noodles the materials inside were not properly made really and people were like damn it Yep, that's Vietnam. Like my friend, uh, my old roommate, my roommate, this guy just let me stay with him because he was very wealthy. He was the the vice president's grandson. And he he was just talking about all these problems in his country. And like he knew he's someone that's like 
ultra wealthy in Vietnam. And he's like, yeah, like everything you're seeing is like kind of accurate. All these observations you're making, it's just really unfortunate. He's like, damn it, like I wish my country did better, but it doesn't. Um, so like they recognize it there. There's just so much corruption in Vietnam. And then the pollution is so bad where I would drive my little scooter every day to work. And if you don't wear a mask, uh, your nostrils, the hairs will be filled with black soot after driving like an hour. So if you just pick your nose, it's just black in there because of all the smog from the, the motorcycles and the buses. And the worst is like if you're driving behind a bus and then it, it, it hits the gas, black freaking fog just comes out and just covers you. It's just gross. And then your clothes smell like toxic fumes and then you just smell like crap. And then I just got sick every every three weeks or so. I just get food poisoning and get sick. I got food poisoning so much in Vietnam that I'm like, I'm like used to food poisoning at this point. It's weird. Like I, I, I'm just like, oh, here's food poisoning. So um, that's one of the reasons I really just like living there. Like if the food and the quality and the transportation and like, you know, the air was all good, then that'd be another story. But that's a huge part of it, of course. And I also got um, like chased by motorcycles and broke my foot one time. And uh, I mean, I don't even know. Have I ever told you the I story of my, I think my, first rim, my first rim job? <laughs> is that is that is that safe to talk about this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead, let's go. All right, my first ring job. So, so um, I'm I'm flying back from uh, from Thailand. Oh, so so before Thailand, um, I'm driving my scooter, going to work in Vietnam, and I'm I'm at this gigantic intersection. Like these intersections are huge, with like a hundred people at each each corner, and. And we have a red light. So I'm, I'm hitting the, oh wait, no, we have a green light. So I'm going full speed. And then I realized my green light is behind a red light. So I'm looking at the wrong light. So I see the red light in front of me. So I slam on the brakes and I hit the only puddle on this dry day. And I crash the scooter. Scooter crushes my foot, break my foot. So I'm like, like crawling to the edge of the sidewalk, like freaking, you know, in a lot of pain, whatever. It heals over like three weeks where I can, um, I go to the hospital, they tell me it's broken. I'm like, all right, fuck. So, so I, uh, I'm like waddling on crutches every day. After three or four weeks, I can like walk, but it's still really painful. So it's like the, it was just the, the first metatarsal, whatever, the big bone, the big bone, I can show you this one. Um, you know, free foot picks for anyone. Um, <laughs> so the big, the big toe broke and I was just like waddling on my heels after that point. And I went to Singapore and then went to Thailand and I was able to walk just fine but i couldn't run or anything because any that additional pressure would be you know painful so i get back from thailand and as i'm trying to get a taxi at the airport in vietnam to go home there is a line for the taxis now everyone in vietnam knows you don't take any taxi that's not an official taxi you always take the real taxis with like the the uh, the sign up and like everyone knows what they they're like green taxis there are green and red taxis in in uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Ho Chi Minh City is uh, the New York of Vietnam. So there's there are like two big cities, Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh. Hanoi sucks. People are gonna hate me for saying that, but I, I hate it there. I'll never go back. I ideally I just don't go back to Vietnam, but I have friends there, so I probably will eventually. Um, one of my one of my best friends in Vietnam is actually like the I think he's top two most famous foreigners in Vietnam. He does um like all the shows and like vlogging or whatever. Um. So anyways, back to the story. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm looking at the line 
and it's really long. I'm like, ah, fuck. And then there's this, like, shady guy comes up to me. He's like, oh, like, you want to ride? And, like, he's, like, kind of beckoning me over. Like, no, fuck off. So I, I'm, like, walking to the back of the line. And I have, and at this time, it was, like, eight years ago. I'm, like, I'm, like, you know, into douchey stuff. I shouldn't say that. I'm into stuff that I would not be into today. So I'm, like, into, like, luxury goods and, like, you know, pretending like I have all this money. So like, I have, like, this fake designer backpack on this fake designer suitcase or a duffel bag. And then I have this fake designer wallet with, with like all my money in it. And then I even had like five iPhones on me because in Vietnam, if you get a brand new iPhone, the first day of release for like the next two or three weeks, the value of those iPhones is double in Vietnam because there is no Apple store in Vietnam. So all the rich people, and there are plenty of rich people, they will pay double the price for an iPhone. So I'm like, okay, let me go like, you know, arbitrage this and, uh, you know, <laughs> let me go, let me go do economic, like geographic arbitrage with these iPhones. Um, so I have all this, and this is like, to me, the fact that is like quite a bit of money to me. And um, so I have all these iPhones on me and all, and I look like a target, you know, I look, I look like I had money, which, you know, I'm like just very average. Um, so I tell the guy to F off, I get in the back of the line. It's so long. I look back out of the line, I'm like, ah. Okay. So I go back to the guy. I'm like, all right, let's go. So we go. And as we exit the airport, we have to pay a little fee to um, get out of the uh, gates. And he wants me to pay it. This is fair. So I open my wallet and he digs his freaking hands into my wallet and takes out a fat chunk of money. Because in Vietnam, the, the, you know, the money is like really like lower value. So basically a $20 bill is their biggest bill. So I'm like, I have like, like a hundred of these bills just sitting there. Maybe not a hundred. I don't know how many, but a fat stack. So he takes the whole stack. He pays the guy and gives me the stack back. Now the stack was notably smaller when I got it back. I was like, all right, I'm not an idiot. I know what just happened. Where the fuck's my money? So I start counting it and I find out how much is missing. It's around a $400. And in Vietnamese money, that's like, hmm. Uh, maybe like 20 or 30 bills missing but i can't find where the money disappeared to so like i'm like checking his body looking under his butt like we stopped the car i look under his chair um i'm looking in his pockets and the funny thing is like i found a 100 us dollar bill in his pocket and i'm like wait why would this guy who's probably making 150 dollars a month max have a hundred dollar bill in a in a in the U.S. currency. He clearly got someone else before me. Yeah. Um. So I still can't find the money, and we're like driving to my apartment still, and I'm like cracking my knuckles because it's cold, but like he thinks I'm like I'm about to whoop his ass, which I really wanted to, but you know, again, like this is, um, you know, still. Uh, anyway, we'll get to that. So, so we're driving to my place, and my place is right next to the most famous market in all of Vietnam. It's called the Ben Pong Market. It's a perfect square in the middle of Ho Chi Minh City. And from the square, it branches off all these roads and all these buildings that, like, spread out. Um, so maybe I could just even, like, share my screen and, like, Google, like, Google Maps Ben Pong Market. Uh, okay. No, that took me to Arlington, Texas. <laughs> Come on. Anyways, uh, whatever, I give up. So, so um, 
so we park and he's like we're still arguing and eventually he like is screaming in in vietnamese right everyone around there it's at night there are all these night market um, people out like people like you know flower shop workers or food workers and uh you know they're not like the wealthiest people and they're seeing us argue and they're just watching us and like surrounding us and the taxi driver shows me where the money is and it was under my seat the whole time now psychologically i'm not i didn't think to look under my own chair right so he basically like debated me and like you know like he, he was smart enough to like hide there but i was still persistent enough to like get him to show me and at this point i was i was like just seeing red i was so upset like i just started like like wrestling this guy and choking him out choking him out in the middle of the street like an idiot so as I'm checking him out, whatever, like eventually I just stopped, and uh, I didn't, I never like I don't think I ever punched him. I just like choked him, and <laughs> everyone's like watching. So I have again, I have my backpack, my duff, my duffel bag, all these phones on me, all my cash, um, all my wallets, and uh, again, my foot was just healed, right? So all these guys are surrounding me now. I'm like, I'm trying to tell this hotel guy to call the cops, and he won't, and. I'm surrounded and I have all my blogs on me. So I'm like walking through the crowd and everyone's just shouting in my ears because obviously I just like choked this guy out. And um, as I'm, you know, walking through the crowd, I realize I'm in probably a predicament and I should probably run. So as I get to the edge of the crowd, I start sprinting up the hill. And I'm like running for my life and I haven't done cardio in like <laughs> 10 years. I haven't done cardio since middle grade track. And... Um, and I'm running up the hill and I take a left. And then at the left, there's this uh, normal taxi driver, a good guy. And he sees me running away from all these people chasing me. And, oh, these people are chasing me on motorcycles at this point. So like, I'm hearing them revving up, like chasing me. They're like getting on their bikes to chase me. And this taxi driver that is a good guy, he thinks I'm a bad guy. So now he's playing good guy trying to stop me. And like we do this dance and we spin in a circle, like you know, those movie scenes where you're spinning in a circle, and I throw him off me in like a perfect loop, and I keep running without losing any speed. And then as I, as I reach the end of this block, my foot snaps. That that toe that was broken yeah. snaps. So now I'm running on a broken foot, and it's the most painful thing. Well, not the most painful thing I've ever been through. Because uh I almost died a few months ago in California. As a I have a scar now from that. But anyways, so um so uh, I'm getting to the end of this corner and like my foot is just screaming. I can't breathe because I'm so out of shape and I'm carrying again, like 50 pounds of luggage on me and I'm at risk of losing everything I have. Um, and everyone catches up to me at this point. So I see this really nice hotel. It's called the White Lotus or White Flower Hotel. Um, and it's about two blocks away, maybe three blocks away. Um, and I'm at the corner right near it. And I got eight people surrounding me on motorcycles just screaming in my ear. I'm like, shit, like, how do I get out of this situation? So I dig into my wallet and I throw up like 80 bucks in the air, like, like you know, making it rain. And that's and, just like, it was like dog. <laughs> and they all scatter. They just scatter and start picking it up. And I'm like, I'm like crawling up the steps to this hotel. And um, I get in and I, I explain the situation. They're like, oh, we'll protect you. We'll protect you. And I, I gave them a five star review, I'm sure. And um, I give them all my money, all my phones and everything. I'm like, put it in your safe. Put it in your vault, please. They're like, okay, we'll take care of you. And I'm so worried that people are going to chase me up the steps that I go and hide in their um, 
their like dining room. And you know, as a child, you one of the like funnest, most fun spots to hide is on top of a chair under the table. So you I'm laying on the chairs and I'm like sleeping, trying to catch my breath. And uh eventually no one came in. I you know, I got um, you know, I just went to sleep and got a room. But the next day, you know, this, this all just ends in a room job, right? So the next day, uh, I wake up and I'm like, all right, I should go to the hospital. So I go to the hospital, I'm on crutches. And as I get to the hospital, um, I'm looking for an English speaking doctor. And this hospital is just rusted everywhere. The floor is just water everywhere. Plants are coming in through the window. And there's just so many people waiting for help. I'm like, all right, where is the English speaking doctor? So I'm like crutching through all this like disgusting flooring. And um, this is the worst hospital I've ever seen. And, and I see these nurses and they're just like gossiping at each other and like yapping. And I'm like, Hey, like English doctor. And they're like, what? And they're, you know, they're like, what? Um, and then all of a sudden my body just like comes over intense pain and I have food poisoning out of nowhere. And my body's just sweating bricks. And, um, I feel like I'm going to die. I'm like, all right, where's the bathroom? And those ladies are just like, you know, pointing in a random direction. So like I walk off in the direction. No one is in this hallway of one. It's just just giant corridor. No one is in this corridor. And it's dark. Uh, all the windows are shattered. I'm looking for the bathroom. And I see this light coming out of this room. So I go into this room and it's this just flooded room with like with uh, urinals. And at the back, there's a, a random door. And I walk to it and it's like a, it looks like a closet. And this door is like shattered as well. Like it's, it looks like someone punched a bunch of holes through it, like, you know, in the shining where the heat takes an ass through it. It's kind of what it looked like. But I open it up, there's a toilet in there. And the floor is flooded in there as well. Like, like I was like, trying to go to work actually. So I had one work shoe on and one foot just like out in the open. And um, I looked down and this toilet seat, there was no toilet seat, it's just the rim. So I had to sit on the rim, and that's my rim job, my first rim job. Oh. <laughs> so I sit on that toilet, and I'm, like, blowing my brains out. <laughs> and um, I look over, and I realize that there's no toilet paper. So I'm like, what do I do? Well, I have a sock. So um, I use my sock, and I toss it in the bag of the toilet because, you know, screw them. Um, and uh, this is why I carry baby wipes with me everywhere. <laughs> Dude, yeah, so that's, that's why I don't like Vietnam because the food <laughs> is is low quality pollution. My nostrils get blacked out and soot, and then and then rim jobs on toilets. <laughs> that's uh, why you don't like Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, you just can't get protein. Anymore. It's just like so hard to get a lot of protein. Well, I mean, I think that's a, a pretty interesting transition. We can talk about fitness now. So after, yeah, after uh, getting chased on motorcycles, breaking your foot, getting a, a rim job after getting food poisoning in this decrepit hospital. No, yeah. So back around to fitness. I think that that's a pretty great transition. Um, but no, man. So like, obviously, uh, you have a background in fitness. It's been something that's been kind of persistent in your life, but not ever really being this like massive entity that you have to focus on exclusively but there have been a couple of times in your life where you've really decided to kind of like turn it up with fitness um do you want to kind of explain like what your relationship with like 
normal training has been. So like resistance training, weightlifting, what that's been like throughout the years. I know that you had a stint where you were kind of like into powerlifting and all those things. Then you want to talk about kind of where you went with like the self-experimentation and like some of the weird, unique things that you did. Um, what was that? Uh, five years ago or so after you had your, like your Goggins revelation, was that around that time? That was um, maybe 2021. Oh, my shit. last, my last race was 2021 in April. Was it that recent? Oh, shit. I, I think. For some reason I felt I like think it was April 2021. Okay. April okay but, yeah. So I'll let you fill in the details in the timeline, obviously, but like, let's just go like high level, talk about like what you have been doing with fitness, with, with training, um, you know, for, for the last however many years, decade. Um, because I definitely want you to talk about a lot of like the the balancing of like your more extreme measures with some of the times that you've been able to pull back and focus on life, focus on like your career and things like that, obviously traveling. Um, but yeah, if you want to talk about that stuff, that would be, I think, a really good way to to continue this. Yeah. So I guess maybe just from the beginning, I just always focus on trying to get big, trying to get stronger. This is like generally the trend with people that are either just getting into fitness or are youthful, you know, when you're not getting injured as much. So when I was, um, what, 18, I benched 365 for my max. The funny thing is I've never squatted 315. So <laughs> I squatted 305 one time. You know that tall, really tall black guy that I used to go to the gym with? He always walks super slow, but yeah. somehow, like, walks kind of fast at the same time. Like, so he was spotting me, and he was like, damn, like, you could do so much more. I was like, probably fuck, damn it. Um, but like, I've never, I've, I've always just ever to like try to get strong in like my upper body. And then, um, when I was younger, so I do legs more than I do any other muscle group because I do a lot of cardio as well, but my legs are certainly like the weakest component of my body probably besides endurance. I'm like endurance. I'm pretty good. Um, but you know, I guess after college, just a lot of travel, I just try to be efficient in my workouts, whether that's hitting full body workouts or, or right now I always group my i group legs and shoulders together always now like people always think that's like a weird combination but i think it's actually very efficient because a lot of the compound movements and i call them hipster workouts um because i don't want to call them like like crossfit because i don't want to be associated in that manner either uh so i just call them hipster workouts kind of like making fun of myself but i think they're actually bad or like functional workouts maybe the uh, word but it's like, 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 you know, like Romanian deadlifts, the snatches or, um, like some kind of like those, you know, Bill Maeda on Instagram, that he does these, like, they call it orbital lunges where you do a lot of, you know, like you're spinning a thing around your head at the same time, yeah. but it's just, it's just very efficient when you're traveling a lot. And, um, I like to knock out workouts where I don't have to worry about hitting the workout the next day. If I don't have, to. I do try and work out almost every day when I'm on the move, regardless, but I don't stress when I don't work out because I know that, you know, I'm compensating from a previous workout or I will compensate uh, when I get to a gym. Uh, so right now, I just focus on being extremely efficient with, with my workouts. And I also balance that with, let's say, like not overindulging on food. Even if what I even when I do indulge, it's um, I do fast quite a bit. So whenever I'm on, a, I haven't had food on a plane in probably a year and I've been flying a lot. So um, I just, I remember this Gordon Ramsay quote. He's like, I don't ever eat on planes. He's like, people aren't supposed to eat on planes. And I have no idea if this is like, has any validity, but I realized like the plan on, the food plane, uh, sorry, the food on planes just sucks usually. 
and it just makes me feel like crap because I'm a very OCD person when it comes to like cleanliness and space and I just hate having clutter in front of me and like I don't want my food next to my pillow and that like you know like just gets to my mind for some reason so I just decided to stop eating and also like one thing is like the food you eat after you don't eat for 30 hours from a long plane flight is the best food in the world. So I strategically staged the best meals of my life by knowing the best meal of my life is in Tokyo. Shinjuku station, the biggest station in the world, train station, about eight minutes walk north of the station is the best ramen I've ever had in my life. And it's like the flavors, you can't imagine what it tastes. It's just this crazy flavor that you don't even realize can exist. But this is my favorite meal. And what I did is after Japan finally opened up after COVID, I flew over and I didn't eat for like 36 hours. And that was the first bite I had. So so basically this is also a fun little trick you could do. If you don't eat for like 30 hours and you pick your favorite food, it'll be even better. <laughs> um, but like I try and like, you know, be efficient with fasting and um, just like maxing out things that I know are probably supposed to be good for you and without these things don't take time like a cold shower does not take time um fasting doesn't take time it saves you more time the things that can give me time back are things that i really prioritize whether it's like you know again fasting or um and well i mean taking a cold shower doesn't give you time back but things that don't take time that really help your health uh, i try and you know take those seriously so right now again like i'm just focusing on efficiency with my workouts but i have signed up for a marathon in february and i haven't run in like two years yeah. so i literally just i went i ran like every, almost every day for two years straight when i was doing ultra marathon and then i just cut it cold turkey after um after my last race but uh, i do want to get back into it because i think that running is actually it's it's also really boring but it's like one of the toughest things you can do because when you're let's say maxing out on bench you have a limit to how many reps you can do of like 315. You cannot do another rep after like whatever your max is, like 10 reps or something. But with with running, uh, you can always take one more step. No one has ever quit running due to them not being able to take one more step. They always just quit. So, so I'm like, all right, this is like a really interesting thing because everyone knew me from college as the guy that would never do cardio. I would never do cardio. I hated it so much. So I was like, you know, this is like a worry challenge. Let's try it out and experiment and see how it goes. And I just got addicted for two years. And I, the plan is to get back in. Um, and that I've already signed myself up. But again, like, it's just like a priority. Thing. Like, you know, if I don't prioritize it over, you know, whether it's like my career or traveling, running is like a full-time job. So I would, I would wake up, go run for six hours, and then just work on my diet and eat and just crush all this food after. And, you know, I know some people can do it. Um, it's just not something that I prioritize currently. Uh, and I would rather just show up for a bigger challenge as well um, than to, you know, potentially uh, sacrifice other things that I'm prioritizing right now, whether it's like travel, spending time with friends, um, just having the time uh, to enjoy other things in life. What, what was the actual switch? Like what... What really caused that that transition from where you were really focusing on, like you said, lifting, resistance training, weightlifting, like trying to get big, trying to get jacked, trying to get strong. And then you're like, fuck cardio, I'm never doing that shit. And then all of a sudden one day you're like, I'm gonna do an ultra marathon. Like, like that doesn't just happen. So like, was there actually something that like 
that motivated you to do that? Something where you're like, holy shit, like I just had this realization. Maybe, yeah. you know, like I, maybe it was you running from motorcycles where you're like, holy fuck, maybe I should do something. <laughs> so I do have this new belief that like anyone I date, I tell them you have to be able to run one mile in case you have to run away from something. <laughs> it's like, I, I like adamantly believe this. You have to be able to run for like 10 minutes. Uh, if you need to escape from, I don't know, like a volcano or you need to escape from some thugs chasing you, or you just need to run away somewhere you know <laughs> yeah or like let's say you're taking care of a baby in the stroller like starts rolling down a hill you need to be able to run after the stroller right there's like a viral video going on now where this lady like there's a stroller falling into or like rolling down into a street and this lady's trying to get it she just falls over because she's like i don't know just whatever but to me like you have to be able to run one mile so you can handle situations that demand you be able to run um but to me i think where the flip kind of happened, I was I was probably actually at my fattest. So this was like I was like two hundred five. I was also probably at my strongest as well, uh, or like recent strongest. I was um, two hundred five, and I've like never really been over one ninety. Like I normally like sit around one eighty three, but when I was two hundred five, um, my friend was telling me this story. So my friend is the most extreme person I know. His name's Kai Tor. He's a news anchor. He just got a job. Um, in Cleveland as the news anchor for their main station. But he's he's always got these crazy ideas and he always wants to push the limits and do these things that are very challenging. For example, he he went to the hospital once and they were like shoving this tube. There's this procedure where he needs to have a tube shoved all the way down his throat, all the way down into his stomach or whatever. And he said that when he went there, um, the anesthesiologist wasn't there to like put him to sleep. And he had to get to work. He's like, I don't have time for this. He's like, just do it. I'm going to stay awake. They're like, no one has ever done this. He's like, I'm going to do it. So they just shove this thing down. Like, oh. And like, oh you know, God. he gets through it, but he's always about these challenges and like doing things that you don't think you could actually do. So I became obsessed with that idea where it's like, all right, like someone challenged me, you know what? Like I'll do that. So whether it's anything, whether it's like skydiving or whether it's like jumping off a cliff and like, you know, I mean, people do all these things all the time, but like, I'm not immune to normal fears. Like I have plenty of, yeah, I have all the normal fears, but I, I like the idea of overcoming these fears and not hesitate. So I have this, this, um, I have this fun little test. I always tell people that is like my favorite one where to see like your ability to overcome a fear without hesitate, hesitating. And it's in rock climbing. So what you do is you, you attach yourself into the auto belay rope that catches you if you fall. But the thing is this, this rope doesn't catch you until you fall for like two or three feet. So you've never felt the comfort of it catching you unless you've done it before. So my challenge is usually you go and if you have never rock climbed in your life, you go and you climb up a super easy route, you get up like 20, 30 feet in the air and you jump off without ever having experienced that feeling of uh, being saved by the rope, you, you are inherently fearful. So I've taken two people to do this and they just shake up there and quiver. And they're like, oh, like they, they can't get down. They're like, er, er, oh. I'm like, this is this is why it's my favorite challenge <laughs> because it's so easy. You just drag any rock climbing gym, you just get up. And like 20 minutes later, they're quaking in their shoes um, trying to get down. But, you know, to some people, like it seems so easy, but yeah. without like actually, um, you know, experiencing it, you know, it's kind of like you need experience. So. So anytime I do something that I know I'm going to either be scared of or hate, I just think about it 
and I just never hesitate to go through with it. Whether it's um like a cold shower kind of a thing. So everyone's like, oh, like you cold hot, cold hot. And it's just like so annoying. But to me, when I was first getting the cold showers, I hated it so much. I would just in my head, I was like, all right, it's a cold shower day, max cold. And even though I know it's coming and I want to get out, I just don't move. And then it comes like, this sounds so obvious, right? But to me, it's like the focus on not hesitating is really important. So I remember um, I was doing a jump in Switzerland off of a cliff with like a, like, a, like a rope swing from a very high cliff. And the guy I was with was uh, like, at first he was like quaking in his shoes. And then, you know, he managed to do it. And my goal was that no matter how scared I was, and it was, you know, I was certainly plenty scared, that I would have a smooth walk right off that edge. My walk would just be nothing. And the same thing with skydiving, just nothing. Um, so for me, you know, it's like a lot of just facing these challenges and having the mental ability to do it in a swift motion. Yeah. And again, this is just like my challenge to myself. And I've kind of gotten used to it. Even with like, this even applies to scary movies. I remember one time, um, the way I got over being scared of the dark was... I was in my basement, and you know, like as a kid, you uh, you're in the basement. It's dark, and like you try and sprint upstairs because sometimes you have to turn the light off from downstairs. Right, and like you, you feel like something, you feel something behind your neck, and like like you know something's gonna come and kill yeah. you if you don't run up the run up the stairs. So this was that feeling I would get in the basement, and and one day out of nowhere, I was like, God, like why am I always so scared? And I just shut off the light, and I didn't move. And five seconds later, when nothing was killing me, I was like, okay, like, you know, and I was still scared, but nothing, obviously nothing is going to kill me down there. And then like a minute later, nothing happened. I was like, all right, this is no longer scary. So I just like forced myself into this, um, you know, confrontation with fear. And I just squashed it. Like my best friend, like I was telling you, he said, anytime I feel fear, I have to squash it right away. Like, like let's say college days and you're someone needs to present like who wants to present first you feel the fear of like oh like i don't want to go first you immediately put your hand up and that's like the way to kind of just squash your fear for the rest of your life uh, i remember i was like scared watching a movie and um the way i got over it was instead of looking away or covering my eyes i put my face right on the screen and just stared at the the whatever the monster was in the movie and it just i just got over my fear uh, like that way um so yeah uh i don't know i, I kind of sidetracked but basically like how did i flip this switch to get into running well my friend again he was telling me these stories of like all these wild things he likes to do and um he's telling me this story about this guy who ran around a single track for 100 miles and at like mile 70 he was pissing blood and his legs were broken and his feet were broken and at mile 80 he's just like waddling and his wife at that time says you're not going to make it. And right when he, he says you're not going to make it, he sprints the last 20 miles with his whole body broken. And I was like, wow, that's like such a fascinating story. And then that, that same week, by coincidence, this podcast comes out with Joe Rogan and Goggins. Oh, yeah. And I'm listening to it. And I'm like, hey, this is that guy that my friend told me about. What the heck? And I listened to this uh, story and like all these like amazing feats of just basically overcoming the worst genetics and like the worst luck and, and having a broken body and still doing these crazy feats of strength. I was like, you know, I'm a bum. Like I'm getting fat. What the hell? So I go outside and it's snowing and I take off my shirt and I run for the first time in like 15 years. 
And from that day, I didn't stop running for two years straight, pretty much. And I did, um, my first race was a half marathon. And I went straight to an ultra marathon, 31 miles, because I thought it'd be cool to skip a marathon, right? And then my next race was a 64-mile race, which I didn't complete. I got the mile 50. And then the race after that was a 100-mile race, which I didn't complete. I got the mile 60. So that was like my um, my time of running, basically just every single day, run, 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 and just eat, eat, eat. Um, yeah, so <laughs> that was that. Well, well, yeah, I mean, so with all of that <laughs> it's a lot obviously but i agree with like the whole do hard stuff right like i i like that mentality i i know that fuck i can't remember the book i've literally tried to think about what the, the book name is the entire time that you were saying that stuff i can't think of it off the top of my head there is a book that um that is is talking a lot about those things like about how you know humans were meant to do hard things to challenge ourselves to push through the potential failures to get to the points of like feeling that ex exorbitant success, right? Like where you overcome mm -hmm. something very difficult, whether that's something like, you know, relatively simple, like doing uh, a cold plunge or like a cold shower, or whether it's doing something incredibly hard, like a hundred mile race, like those are obviously vastly different in scale, but there's something that is like inherent to being a human of like overcoming hard things and doing those hard things and subjecting yourself to those hard things. And I definitely like that, that mentality. Um, there's, like I said, scales though, right? Like most people aren't just going to go from, all right, I'm training, I'm in the gym, I'm lifting hard, I'm doing hard things to I'm going to do a hundred fucking mile race to the desert. Like that is ridiculous stuff. And you mentioned that, you know, you read, did you read Goggins book or did you just listen to the? I listened to the audio book. Yeah, I listened to the audio book. So, um, so the, like the Goggins book is actually like pretty fucking wild. Like if you hear that story um, and I don't know how many people who are listening have actually like read Goggins book or like know that story. But pretty much like the most motivational dude you could ever imagine like he's pretty much just the the epitome of like nut up or shut up like he doesn't give a fuck about any excuses like he's very much like if you want something like you're able to go do it like you're you're you are your only enemy right like you're the only thing holding your back holding you back um and again like i i do really appreciate and like that mentality uh, but there is a a point right like there's a point where like you can't continue to push yourself and if you do like you might getting you might be getting into the realms of like this is unhealthy or unsafe at what point for you were you like okay maybe i should just like not continue doing this or did you ever feel like all right if i keep doing these crazy ultra marathons like i'm going to potentially like fuck myself up because th that point yeah these are thoughts isn't healthy like that's not healthy so i don't ever think i actually reached my limits um so the first time I ever learned that ultra marathons were a thing was in Switzerland in 2015 or so. And I'm on this train, and I'm sitting next to this girl and this girl looks like she's uh, like the, the Michelin man, like with the, you know, puffy look. And she's not fat. She's just wearing four layers of clothing. Yeah. And I was like, why are you wearing so much clothes? She's like, oh, like I didn't want to check a bag. And um, I was like, oh, so what are you doing? She's like, oh, there's like a race. Uh, in in these mountains and this is Zermatt Switzerland and this is actually probably the most famous or most coveted race in the world for ultras it is in the Swiss Alps it's just beautiful uh it's called the UTMB something something blog or something and everyone tries to get into it um and she is racing it I'm like oh like what's this race she's like oh like it's the ultra marathon I was like what's an ultra marathon like, anything over a marathon so like we're talking, I'm like fascinated. She's telling me this story and 
about like how she was, you know, running all these miles. And I asked her, what is the furthest you have ever run where you thought you were going to die? And then at what mile did you run beyond that? And how many miles did you run further? And she said she ran 140 miles and she thought she couldn't take a single additional step. And she was literally going to die. And she ran 40 more miles. I was like, holy shit, I'm a bum. Like, what the heck? I can't even run 30 seconds losing my uh, breath. So, so I do agree there is always a limit. The question is like, you probably have no idea what our limit actually is, is the idea. So when I got to mile 50 in my second ultra, and like, I was so underprepared for these ultras because I was just running on treadmills. So like, I would run marathons on treadmills, literally just watching Westworld on an iPad, four or five hours straight on a treadmill. And that was my training, just flat, smooth coasting. And then I get to this race and it's, it looks like fucking like climbing to Mordor with all these rocks everywhere. And I'm like, I can't run. I'm literally just like trying to like not fall on these rocks. And that's for 20 hours straight. I was like, fucking, I fucking hate this shit. This is so annoying. But um, that was uh, my second race. And I got to mile 50 and like my right leg was just destroyed. And I, I you know, I, I feel like I couldn't walk further. But again, it's like, wait, if these people are getting 140 miles and they can go another 40 miles and, you know, maybe I could have gone further. I know my last race, the 100 miler where I got to 60, I know I could have kept going. I was totally fine. And I actually went into that race injured, but the injury never flared up during the race. I was just so tired and I only slept three hours before this race. And I was just like, I just pretty much quit. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I agree there is probably a limit, but that most people definitely quit way before their limits. And, you know, when you're in pain, you're, you could probably still go like three X more. So yeah, I agree. Um, I just think that there's a lot more to people's limits. What was the actual most difficult thing about the ultras? Was it the terrain? Um, I mean, the races themselves, the terrain, like, I think if it's a, if it's a flat race, I can, I can go forever, Yeah. but I'm, I'm probably the slowest person in every race. Literally, like I was literally the slowest person in every single race, but I managed to stay the last person and not drop out the longest as well. So like everyone would be like, you're the last, but you're still not dropping out. Like all these people ahead of me are dropping out. So that was kind of fun. And like chasing people down is really fun because like, I'm like, you know, I, I was still lifting um, yeah. three, four days a week and staying pretty, pretty jacked for these races and like heavy. And I would catch up to these like slim dudes that are like just like goats in the mountains. And I was like, oh, like I'm catching up to people. I'm just like power walking them down at times, like because these hikers are straight up hills. Um, what was the question again? <laughs> yeah, the, the most difficult part of the ultras. Oh, uh, yeah. So for the actual race day, they would be the, they would be the terrains um, because I just didn't train on these terrains, and I I also hate spending time going to different types of trails and like training on these terrains. It's just so time consuming. So I, that's why I always just did the Stairmaster and um, like the Octane ellipticals yeah. and treadmills. Um, but the most difficult thing about all shredding is just time consumption. Yeah. So there's, there's someone that's running right now. He, he's been running a 50 K, which is probably, I think 31, 32 miles every single day for the past 192 days. 
and she's still going. She has not quit this for 200 days, and I believe she she just wants to hit 200. Uh, she's the race organizer. Her name is like Candace Burke or something, and she organized the she organizes the Tahoe 240 mile race, or it might be Tahoe 240, Tahoe 200, and there's a Moab 240, and these are like two of the longest races in the USA, and these are like the ones that Goggins has done yeah. as well. Um, but she just her life is like all running right now. She says she writes it. She's like, I've been running every single day for like six, five, six hours every single day. And I've just lost my life. Like she doesn't know what the real world looks like right now is basically what, what she's riding. She just, you know, runs, like sees her family and sleeps pretty much. And um, so it's just time consumption. It's just yeah. so time consuming. Like, yeah, that's the worst part. It's just, it's a full-time job. Yeah, no. And there have been a couple of instances over the past few years where something like that has happened or some someone has broken some kind of record. Like I know that the marathon record for men got broken relatively recently. Someone broke two hours, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Elliot Kipchoge's, um, I think it's like Kenyan or something. Uh, he broke the two hour mark in a very like formatted race. So like they, they conditioned this race to be perfect for him, but he still broke it. Yeah, so things like that. I know that a few years ago, someone did an Ironman in every state in 50 days. Yeah, like, I saw that. It was like a Netflix thing. But it's like, it's shit like that is, that's actually like pushing what the limits of like a human body can do. And like this woman who's running 50K in what, like you said, every single day for 200 days, like, like that's incomprehensible to me, like absolutely right. incomprehensible. Right. And like, I don't even know if there is an equivalent for like weightlifting or anything that would be more familiar to me, but I can't think of it. Right. Like the only thing I can think of that would be in any way similar would to be like, go in and do something like 10 by 10 squats every single day. And obviously that's not in any way the same because the time but you did the month of deadlift thing. No, that's not even close. Not even close. <laughs> like it, it, It's really not because like I can scale back on intensity, right? Like I can change for 50 kilometers running every single day for 200 days. It's the monotony. I feel like it's, it's so boring. Like you said, yeah. it's, it's like your entire life, your entire reality warps around. And there's a lot of podcasts, a lot of podcasts and movies and shows that, yeah, it's, it's, that's fucking absurd. But like, she's not doing that in any structured way. Like that's just more recreational. She's just doing that to, to do it essentially. Right. Yep. Just to challenge okay. yourself. Um, I do have a question though about like the, the ultra stuff. So first of all, like what would be a good, like, I don't know, good, like a good pace for like a hundred miles because these aren't, they're not a set length, right? You mentioned hundred miles. Yeah. Right? You'll be like running and hiking. Like you hike uphill. You don't, yeah. you do not run uphill unless you're like crazy, I guess. Um, but like, Which, like, I mean, a, I think like, a, like a per mile pace, right? So like, like some of like, let's say like, it'll probably be like 13 or something. 13. Like people can, people can do, it depends on the train. If you're like running on a flat track, this is much different. Like people, I think people have done like five to six, maybe like a six minute pace for a hundred miles. Holy um, shit. It might even be five. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. I know one of the best, these, I think he's the single best ultra runner in the world. Uh, his name's Killian Jornet. I think he does a lot of trail races at like six minute paces sometimes. And I might be wrong. I would have to check. Um, but he is like by far the best um, trail ultra runner in the world. And 
it's like there's such a gap between him and others. It's kind of crazy because there is this race that our, our mutual friend Heather, she did in Colorado. I don't know if she did the actual race or she just did the course on her own with friends. It's called the Hard Rock 100, which is in Silverton, Colorado. And it's one of the single hardest ultras in the world at 100 miles because the terrain, it just, it's like 40,000 feet of climbing or something. And to put that into perspective, my last 100 miler was 10,000 feet maybe of climbing. And that was a lot. So yeah. this is 40,000 feet on shitty terrain, like rocks that are jagged, so annoying. Um, this guy, he, he uh, gets first place, but in like the first few hours of the race, he falls and dislocates his shoulder. So he's running with a uh, with shoulder up in a sling for, for the next however many, 15, I don't know, 20-some um, hours probably. And he comes in first place. And by a long shot. So the second place guy comes in, he sits down, and he's getting interviewed. And there's this video on YouTube. It's kind of funny. And everyone's, like, asking questions about it. And then Killian, the first place guy, comes over with his broken arm in his sling. He's like... It's like, oh, good job. Like, try to be genuine, but the, the second place, I was like, this fucking guy. Like, God, yeah. fuck. <laughs> no, it, that, that's part of my thing with ultras is I, I can't even comprehend it, right? Like, I can comprehend a marathon. I think it's mostly because, like, it's so much more common. And I can, I can conceptualize the idea of doing something for two to three hours, right? Like, I can't do a marathon in two to three hours. But, like, I can conceptualize people doing continuous hard activity for two to three hours doing that for a day straight is like that just it that boggles my fucking mind yeah. like I, I can't i can't wrap my head around how someone can actually do that and like what you said elevation the terrain like it none of it makes any sense to me like none of it does it doesn't it should not be humanly possible to do that um but another question i do have though is like like do you sleep on some of these long races like do you, like how do you uh, i never did yeah like, people do like they'll nap for like two or three minutes just to like read it's like you just need to like fall asleep just to wake up oh so it's just um, two or three minutes so they're just like no oh. yeah people aren't sleeping like for hours like i know let's say like someone like goggins um he did the 240 mile race and it took him maybe like 60 to 70 hours oh. and he didn't sleep a second on that run so he was like three days in and he's just like half dead. I don't I don't know out of the 70 hours. I think he did it at a 17 minute pace for 240 miles. Yeah. Which is like really yeah. That, that, see that that's like the equivalent of telling me like how many light years away some like neighboring <laughs> is. Like like I can hear numbers, but like it's just not making any sense to me. Like none of it is registering because I can't mm -hmm. I can't comprehend doing something like that, but no, I mean, I am super fucking fascinated with ultra stuff. I think that I could probably ask you questions about that forever, but I do want to also talk about some of the other stuff that you've done. So obviously we talked a little bit about fasting. I don't know how extensively you've done fasting or like the depth of it, but it hasn't always been I'm not very, I'm not like very strict about it. Like I'll try to fat, like I haven't eaten and it's 4.30 PM and I ate my last meal at like eight or nine, but that's because I just had calls from 8 a.m. to you know, the time our podcast was. And I was like, oh, I just haven't time to eat. And, I, and I've been like traveling a lot. So I'm not eating as healthily as I normally would. And like, yeah, yeah. I'm not like super healthy, but I try and get a certain amount of protein in and I don't, I just eyeball it. 
and I try to get, um, you know, like fruits and veggies in, you know, I don't really think beyond that. Um, so yeah, like, you know, I probably work out and I haven't eaten 20 hours or so. But yeah, but with the fasting, you're not doing it in like any super structured way, right? Like, yeah. Okay. Zero structure. Because to yeah. me, it's not, it's not worth the bandwidth and the thought yeah. and like the likelihood that I stick to it is very low. And I don't take this, I don't take it that seriously. I take my health seriously, but I'm, I'm okay with breaking these habits as long as I get back. It's like, like, I'm okay with losing some sleep as long as I, you know, make sure like normally I will be getting sleep when I'm out and in my own, in my own bedroom. Yeah, no. So the best way I can encapsulate that is very similar actually to how I view fasting because I, I intermittently fast most days, but it's to make your life a little bit easier rather than trying to like optimize something. So you're like opening up more time in your day to get more shit done. You save so much time. Yeah. Like I wake so, up, no yeah. food necessary. Then you don't have to digest. You don't have to digest to go to the gym. Uh, it just is so much uh, time freed up when you fast. And that's, that's usually what I do as well. Like usually on days that I train, I will not eat up until like my pre-workout meal. And that will usually be like between 11 and one or something like that. But then on days that I am resting, so typically will be like Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday, I usually will either not eat at all, or I'll just have like one meal late in the afternoon, like whenever Lex is home and we're just chilling or something like that. But a big reason for that is because I found that whenever I eat, especially like any kind of like carb heavy meal, I just get drowsy as fuck and I get groggy. Like yeah. I, I don't know exactly like why that is for me specifically. And I don't feel like it's always been like that. But if I eat any kind of meal with carbs, I'm immediately sleepy and I'm immediately like, happens so to me. I don't, yeah, I don't want to work. To me. I, yeah, I can't work. So I'm just like brain foggy. Uh, like I can typically have like protein shakes or like something that's protein and fat heavy, but nothing in terms of like carbs, definitely not any kind of like starchy carbs, but no, cool. So we can definitely move on from the fasting stuff, but what was the full body everyday training that you used to do? Oh yeah. So this is where I was. I mean, I'm still traveling. Let me sh let me really, let me uh, screen share this. Is it actually going to load? Oh, the screen share I'll load. This is something that I already have set up. Uh, travel history. Let me screen share. And whenever you screen share, you're definitely also going to have to explain what's on the screen. Oh yeah, no worry. That'll be simple here. You uh, more share screen. Host disabled participant screen sharing. Okay, never mind. Not screen sharing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's just walk uh, through it. That like every screen share attempt has been just an abject failure. Yeah. So so basically, um, I was traveling in Asia for like three or four, three months or so. The like just a few months ago, I was in Taiwan for a company retreat for a few weeks, and then Japan, uh, and then back to Taiwan. And I thought, you know, like. I want to see what my body can feel like if I do full body every single day with no days off. But when I do take a day off, it doesn't matter because I've loaded so many full body days that it's just like, you know, like normal taking days off. Um, so I did this and I did this for about a month straight. And what was interesting, I, I felt very well rounded. Instead of like a certain body part feeling sore one day, my whole body felt sore every single day. And I like feeling sore because it feels like I've done something. Um, you know, I know like there's some information out there. Maybe that's like not the case. But to me, it felt like as long as I was smashing protein, and I was because they're all like buffets in Taiwan. And like one was called Momo's Paradise. It's like unlimited beef and soup. It was delicious. But 
So I was getting sufficient protein, but I wasn't getting sufficient sleep. So I think full body every single day can actually work, but you need to get your seven minimum hours of sleep every single night. Once that starts slipping, just goes out the window. So I was like, like sleeping three to five hours because it's just like new environments and like the bed's not comfortable. I don't like the pillow. I don't know. Um, so, so again, like I, I'm, I don't think it's very ideal because there are too many variables that can go wrong, but in a closed environment, I think it's actually quite ideal that someone could pull it off as long as they're sleeping and getting the nutrition. Um, but it was definitely difficult. And at first, like my body was getting used to, but then started to feel pretty good actually. So, um, I, I think, you know, if someone wants to try it out, it could be pretty interesting. That's actually really similar to my little experiment that I did a few years ago with deadlifting every day that you mentioned a second ago. At the very beginning, it was like, it crushed me. I mm -hmm. could not recover. I was so fucking sore. I started getting like all of these like nervous system complications. Like I felt like I was getting sick every other day. Like I, I was just all shut down and I actually was getting like long sessions of tattoos done in the middle of that too, which definitely didn't help the nervous system stuff. But what I felt was after I got through like the midpoint of the month, it just felt fine. I was good. Mm -hmm. I also felt strong as fuck. And despite the fact that I was deadlifting every single day, my low back, like my hips, everything felt so resilient. Like it was crazy. I was like, I can go in there and just deadlift 500 pounds out warming up and my low back would be fine. Like yeah. today, if I try to do that, I would explode. I would break in half. Yeah, because I feel like the body is like meant to be able to acclimate to the, like something that's daily. Because you know, I don't. Yeah. I always like go. I use like caveman analogies. Basically, like if a caveman was doing something every single day, then in theory, we should be able to do this. Well, so I 100% agree with you. Like our bodies are so pliable and plastic, and will adapt to pretty much anything that you throw at it. It's more of a question of like is this actually useful to adapt to though, right? So like for me, deadlifting every single day, doing a weird variation, doing 500 pounds, multiple reps, multiple sets every single day, that's probably not really useful for like the goal that I was trying to achieve back then. For you, training full body every day, it's still probably not useful for the goal that you're trying to achieve now because it'd be more beneficial for you to just do full body like three times a week and just like maintain your muscularity, maybe train a little bit right. harder, like condense yeah. your training. Uh, but it is cool sometimes to like run these weird experiments where you just try and see what your body can adapt to and see like where you can push those limits. That's something I found very fun for me. It breaks the monotony of like going to the gym and doing the same like same workout over and over and over every single year, like just always trying to like slowly improve incrementally, like one percentage point at a time on, mm -hmm. you know, fucking bench press. But every once in a while, like trying to shake things up like there was a period I think it was last year where I did like a month or maybe even longer of like only unilateral training like I only did unilateral training um and my body felt so much better like felt so much better I definitely was able to correct some asymmetries that I had and in general like it felt more natural in a lot of ways than like doing bilateral variations and like the the counterparts to those unilateral work but yeah, I mean, anyway, like I, I would agree with you that like our bodies can adapt to pretty much anything. Like any, any real stimulus, short of like something that is catastrophic that's gonna like absolutely fucking kill us. Like the hormetic effect is is way stronger than I think that most people understand. 
which is again one of the reasons why like vaccines or it is the reason why vaccines work right it's also the reason why we can grow and get big strong muscles because like this lower level of adaptable stress repeatedly applied over time eventually our bodies just create mechanisms to immunize ourselves against those things right so like we grow muscles we develop anti antibodies like all of that so no man i i definitely think that's interesting is there anything else that you've done in terms of like self-experiments that have been a little bit different um uh, probably that's about it like yeah you know, like focusing on that like that new like health stuff where it's fasting and the cold plunges this is all like for the past year of hype that people are getting to this um full body every day ultra running and you know definitely getting back into running uh right now as well but probably about it as far as fitness goes well that's pivot from fitness then because before we wrap up i definitely just want to like nerd out for a second we can talk <laughs> about like what you're currently doing and right. and we can just have like a brief conversation about crypto world like potentially even for people who have absolutely no fucking idea like what crypto is or like what the reason for something like cryptocurrency would be or people have no clue what a blockchain is or like people don't know what a, a bitcoin or an ethereum is so like do you want to just briefly talk about like what you currently do, like your role with, with Osmosis, the company that you're working with now? And if we need to, we can kind of like go real high level on like crypto in general. Like it's going to have to be super high level because we don't have a fucking decade to talk about everything. But right. you want to just talk about that stuff real quick? Yeah. So at Osmosis, um, I guess internally, I would be the chief of staff, but externally, I'm essentially like head of, head of growth and strategy or, you know, like if you want to call it chief strategy officer or something, essentially just leading the growth um, of our team with the co-founders and making sure that, uh, you know, we have the bandwidth to grow and that our product gets adopted. And I guess, what is our product? Essentially, well, sometimes we try to be vague, like if we're talking to people that aren't crypto native, because it's a little weird. People are like, oh, like, what do you do? And the, the thing, the generic answer I gave was like, oh, like, it's a financial privacy technology, which yeah. is like technically true, but not in the sense you think. Like when you're thinking about financial privacy, you're thinking like, oh, no one knows I'm doing these transactions. No one, like the government can't find me. Yeah. Um, I don't want some girl to know I'm paying for my second girlfriend over in China. So, you know, this isn't me. I'm just saying like, this is like what people yeah. think of financial privacy. But uh, for us, it's like more that people that would take advantage of knowing what your transaction is ahead of time, they don't get to take advantage of that knowledge. It's kind of like in, in Wall Street where, uh, your your data is generally sold and this data basically allows people that are paying for it to take advantage of that data um you know it's kind of like front running yeah. uh your money by your money this is the bulk of like all mega millions of dollars of you know retail customers so this is uh like what we kind of tell people that aren't crypto native but people that are crypto native uh, osmosis is essentially it's this DeFi hub, decentralized finance, financial hub, where all sorts of financial products can come in and use this blockchain or essentially a platform to um, launch their products. So whether it's like a trading platform, whether it's leverage, whether it's perpetuals, whether it's lending and collateral and borrowing, um, whether it's NFTs or whether it's video gaming, these are all things that are um, either existing, being built, launching soon, or um, coming in the near future on osmosis and the the vision for osmosis at, at like 
um, the root level is essentially that you will be able to swap from, you will be able to have liquidity or swap anything from anywhere to anywhere. So if we were to think of this in the real world, you would think of like, how do I, um, let's say there's like all this gold in Ghana or something, and you want gold in Alaska for some reason. How do you get gold to Alaska? Basically, this platform allows this to happen seamlessly without you ever having to deal with all the bullshit. Like, imagine trying to send money to Venezuela with Western Union. They take 70% of your money, and you probably have to worry about it getting lost or something. And then you have to worry about, like, um, you know, how long it takes to get there. It might, I don't know, maybe it takes two weeks or something. This is just tedious bullshit. Why do you have to worry about three separate things that in themselves are each significant? The idea is that everything is going to be seamless. You only have to interface in one way and it's, it's just one click and you're done. So whether it's, you know, um, like nowadays you can just order something from Alibaba all the way in China. And this comes to your doorstep in like three days and it's like $2. How does this happen? Because, you know, the infrastructure in place for all of this, uh, tr all of these transactions is already set so that you have the easiest and most beautiful time of your life ordering this $2 card from China, but, but someone built it all out and it's there and it exists because of all this effort um, being put in. So basically, you know, we're, we're building um, this, this platform that the goal is to have this seamless infrastructure for anything financial related. Yeah. And I, I think that a really good parallel here is you mentioned like, Western Union, like potentially like a remittance payment, right? So like someone who is in the US, like sending money back to their home country to like help fund and pay for like their family that is, is back right. there, right? And right. like that is an extortionate business in a lot of ways because these like Western Union companies like that, they take massive fees. There's a lot of checks and balances. There's a lot of approval systems and qualifications and they can freeze your money if they decide to. And if you're sending money back to a communist country or a totalitarian country or whatever like there are a lot of eyes that are going that are looking yep. into like your transactions into your money a lot of people that can potentially try and put their hands in that pie or restrict what you're doing like yep. financial freedom is not necessarily inherent in every single place in the world which we, we live in the u.s for yep. us that's something that we take for granted because we just assume that hey if we send our money to our friend, it's going to get there and, you know, we're not gonna have to worry about it. Or we assume that whenever we get paid from our employer, that it's just gonna show up in our bank account and we're not gonna have any issues yeah. moving that or going to the ATM and, and getting our money out. But in most countries, maybe not most, but in a lot of countries around the world, that's not the case. And like even a country like Argentina, I was reading an article the other day where people in Argentina choose to be paid in a cryptocurrency because by the yeah. time they get paid their salary, by the time it gets to their bank account, it's already yeah. been inflated away and it's already worth yeah. like yeah. half. It's worth like yeah. half the amount yeah. that it was or that they should have been paid, right? Because that's the, the inflation rate that Argentina is experiencing and their conversion rate is so pitiful whenever you're going between dollars and whatever, is it Argentina, Argentinian peso? Is that what it is? Something oh, like that. Sure what it is. Yeah, but anyway, anyway, so like, that is essentially like the, the value proposition of something like, like osmosis, which is like you said, it's a decentralized finance hub, but right now it's a decentralized exchange. So a lot of people can think of this, like if you have a Robinhood account, or if you have like a brokerage account through 
uh, let's say like Schwab or through TD Ameritrade or Fidelity or any of these like big companies, essentially it allows you to go and exchange assets for assets, right? So in the US, we might go and exchange our dollars for gold or exchange our dollars for shares of Apple or for government bonds or something like that. But a large majority of countries in the world, like they're not able to do that as frictionless and as seamless as the US can. But that presents a massive problem for a lot of people because they're financially excluded from the system, right? And for citizens in China or for citizens in Russia, yeah. like they're they're not responsible for the crimes of their country or the crimes of like the leaders in their country. So for someone who is stuck in those countries or who is potentially living under sanctions, like they're watching their wealth that's being generated throughout their entire lifetime, either yeah. confiscated by their country or being evaporated because their country's home currency is being inflated away or like in Turkey or Argentina. So there are a lot of places in the world that are suffering from a lot of problems financially and people don't have the same freedom that we do in the US, which is why cryptocurrency is a thing, right? Like that's why Bitcoin is a thing. A lot of people don't know what Bitcoin is, but Bitcoin is essentially like the OG way to protect yourself against the government meddling with your money, right? Like that's the, essentially what, what Bitcoin was created for. It was after like the financial crisis in 2008, people were like, fuck this bullshit. I'm not gonna allow like the government to continue bailing out banks and just like inflating away my money. Like that seems ridiculous. So Bitcoin is essentially like digital gold. Like that's the whole premise behind it. Ethereum came along a little bit later. They added a lot of functionality to what a blockchain can do. So now Ethereum is like this like settlement layer, right? So like you can transact on Ethereum. You have like smart contracts, which are basically just these cool little agreements that says like, hey, I'll do this if you do that. And then Osmosis is built on top of Cosmos, which is, we don't need to get into too much detail there, but it's essentially allowing people to come and exchange asset for asset and not necessarily have to rely on their country or the right. infrastructure in their country to do that. Because if you have a computer, if you have internet connection, you're you're basically able to get access to these decentralized financial applications, which is the whole premise behind decentralized finance. It's, it's not governable, right? Like it's not nationalized. It's It's not one single person or one company that's running it. It's a lot of different hubs it's a lot of different servers it's, a lot, it's spread out it's decentralized right so um do you want to add anything to that or is there anything that i missed no it's pretty good i think yeah. uh i think uh especially for like this podcast it's like kind of spot on and a good summary yeah and you mentioned that osmosis is really like transitioning towards being like a hub right so like in in a perfect world like they're there would be kind of like the abstraction between like you mentioned even before like the real world right like whenever you think of the real world you think of like transferring gold from africa to the us or something like that that's the real world but ideally there should be an abstraction between like the digital world and the real world like you shouldn't have to think about the digital world as like exactly separate, yeah the that's the goal thing. is like we don't we don't want users to necessarily even know they're using yeah. osmosis the technology is just there so one like one of my dreams, um, and like this isn't far off, and it could happen today if we um, put the infrastructure in place. Where basically, someone someone from the USA can send money to someone in Africa without any registration in one click. Now, how would this happen? Is you would you would um, transfer money through like a fiat on ramp provider, uh, Cato is is the company's name, and they would interact through Osmosis. And then on the other side, they would get out of osmosis through the same type of entity on the other side, maybe in Africa, 
and this per this this company in Africa deposits it in someone's bank account over there. So like this is all feasible in a single click, but it just needs a lot of coordination between companies and making sure these things are in place. So this is like in, in, entirely feasible in the immediate future if it were to be built out. But this is like kind of the thing that I would like to see, uh, just having so much more interoperability between countries without people having to basically deal with something like Western Union. Yeah. Well, like you mentioned before that in in Japan, they have basically like they can just scan and pay with their card or pay with like their phone, right? The phone is the ideal because you just QR code yeah. something, you pay with it. And in an ideal world, I feel like there should be some kind of like digitally native money, some kind of digitally native way of paying and accounting and keeping track of all of your funds to where it shouldn't even necessarily have to be going through a chase or going through like some kind of big, big bank or someone who can potentially like exert power and control over like your money. Right. And exactly. yeah. I, yeah, that's ideal. You don't want anyone like, why should someone have yeah. power over your money? Yeah. Essentially? And in, in the U S like we've even seen this more recently with like a lot of these like regional banks failing where there were even questions at like Silicon Valley bank where like, do the depositors get their money back or they made whole. And what that means essentially is like, if you put money in Silicon Valley as a way to just hold your money there in an account, whenever Silicon Valley went bankrupt and went under, they were actually questioning whether the people who were holding their money in the in those accounts should get their money back, should have that money protected. Like that's mm -hmm. a big fucking problem if you can't even trust the banks that you're putting your money in to be responsible with your money. And newsflash, banks aren't responsible with your money. Like <laughs> yeah. as soon as it goes in, as soon as you put money in, they send it right. out in like 10 different directions, right? Like Great YOLO, they, yeah. they don't hold your money physically in right. any of those banks. That's not how these things work. So because of that, like my opinion, I don't think that like the future should have banks. Like, I don't think that there needs to be the same concept of physical banks that just hold everyone's money. In my opinion, which is one of the reasons why I got, I began to get so fascinated with like crypto. It's like, it just seems like it makes so much more sense. Like it, they're just an unnecessary middleman. Like, why, yeah, exactly. Like, why are these, why are these bums that just take money even existing? And yeah. it's just like an old school mentality. Uh, and this would honestly like probably streamline the entire world's economy if um, these middlemen that are taking so much money weren't doing this. Do you find that like whenever you tell people that, you, even if you don't tell people initially, but like, do you feel like it's hard to have the conversation with people and tell them that you work in crypto because crypto has such like a shitty name? I just don't tell people. Yeah. Do you? They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, like I work in tech. They're like, what kind of tech? I'm like, Oh, a financial tech. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. I'm like, yeah, just some boring stuff. Like someone came up to me at the airport. It's like, so what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a consultant. Yeah. It's like, oh, what, what, what kind of company? I'm like, oh, just the finance. I just don't why, tell people anymore. Why do you think that crypto in general has such like a bad name or like it's so misleading? It's just the influencers and the like bros, like the hype. Like same with like Wall Street bets and like people, like it's like GameStop mentality. Uh, that's what people see cryptos as because that's like what went viral. Like people, that's all you generally hear about on like TikTok and Instagram. It's just scammers. So like yeah. the real, the real information for crypto isn't really on TikTok ever or on um, Instagram, and it's not influencers. It's generally just like YouTubers that are the decent YouTubers are playing scammers, and then Twitter content and you know 
your parents aren't on Twitter. Like Twitter is generally like where, uh, in my opinion, is where like the best information is. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed too, is that like what you mentioned, a lot of the information that you see come out about any kind of like crypto or like blockchain stuff, at least whenever things aren't like insanely inflated and like speculations of like massively high and everyone's getting rich. Like what was it? 2021 where it was like NFT mania was going crazy and like all that shit. Like whenever things calm back down to earth, everyone is very quick to be like, Oh, this is like just bros, like gambling their money. It's just people like trying mm -hmm. to get rich quick. Um, but I've always found that it's, really hard to get through to people and communicate like what the actual purpose of like crypto is because they're they're right. also they're also jaded by hearing like all the scams hearing of all the ways that people lost money of hearing of all the ways that people have made a fuck ton of money but they view that as like being lucky or not deserving it right? yeah yeah every like uh, dogecoin yeah like dogecoin <laughs> like people just get rich off of like yeah. meme coins and it's like right. that kind of undermines a lot of like the real use cases behind what crypto is, is meant to be or what is created to be um but even something as simple as like like the mining issue right like every time you hear about bitcoin like you hear about like how bitcoin is like like killing all of the rainforests or like how every time like someone brings up especially like there are a lot of congressional hearings about these things but, like every time someone talks about it they talk about how like crypto is used for like like money laundering and they're used for like paying for drugs and they're like all right. these activities um, but it's never really like talked about the potential use cases for crypto. And I've always found that to be very interesting. Um, and even like within the U S it's become a very like bipartisan issue where like, oddly enough, Republicans are very like pro crypto, which typically you don't think of like Republicans being like pro technology right. and like right. Democrats have become very anti-crypto, which historically you've thought of Dems being more like liberal, open-minded, like pro tech, pro progress. And crypto also has the potential to like somehow equalize the the mm -hmm. yeah. wealth gap too. Um, yeah. So like all of these things are beneficial, but I, I think that you'd probably agree that there are, are a lot of friction points and it's still like a very nascent technology. It's still super fucking immature, which is why you've seen a lot of people that have potentially like lost a lot of money or they've been hacked or, you know, they've come in, they've like bought into the excitement they've like bought nfts and then they're like fuck this this is too difficult for me to manage there's too many things going on at all at all times um and honestly like it, it's kind of hard to for me as someone who like i truly do believe like in the technology i think that it is something that is incredibly useful for a lot of people it's all often hard to, to like look through like the scammers and like look through like all of the bad things that have happened like the sam bankman freed and like all all of this shit and remember that there are like a lot of potential use cases like is that something that you ever really struggle with because i know that you now get paid like that's how you get like comped right like you get comped a lot through like um more like token based incentives right uh maybe only like half okay okay uh, the other it's like we have like a us entity that compensates with like health benefits and and uh insurance and and uh that makes sense like a, like an actual like yeah. company that but like you know, there are multiple entities in different countries that yeah. uh, because we have empl employees all over the world. No, no, that makes total sense. Um, but yeah, dude, is there anything else that you want to add to that? Like, just talk about like how that all works, like what the goal is. Uh, I, I don't know if I would talk about that. I think like if anyone's listening and like you know people that have no knowledge of crypto, basically just do your own research. I wouldn't listen to people um, that have strong opinions. I generally like want. Like for myself, I tend to like try and form my own opinion. 
and people that are way too excited or, or single-sided. Uh, it's generally for some kind of odd reason. And, and you should at least form your own opinion before accepting more opinions. But I mean, unless you have more questions about crypto, I can, I can get into whatever you want. I mean, I've already taken up a fuck ton of your time. So I'm going to like chill out now, but no, man, do you want to like just punctuate this? Do you want to let people know where they can find you? Let people know where they can find more about osmosis, what you do? Yeah, I mean, normally, like, publicly, like, anyone that I know in real life, I don't tell anyone about, like, what company I actually work for. It's not on my LinkedIn. Yeah. It's nowhere to be seen. Um, but, like, Osmosis, you can just see it on Twitter. It's just Osmosis Zone. Uh, or you can go to osmosis.zone and check out the website. Um, but, like, none of my socials have anything about my work life. Uh, like, my Instagram is just my name. And there's nothing about my work on there. And there's really nothing about fitness on there either. So, so if you just want to see travel photos, you could follow me. But as far as work or fitness, there's zero. That's fair enough. Travel photos are good though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, dude. I'm gonna let you go. I know that you're currently like sitting on a bathroom floor right now. So yeah, this, I'm gonna take off background, my filter. This background is, is is amazing. But all right, bro. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this though. Let's see, choose virtual background, not ah. I'm in this toilet <laughs> room. The reveal. The reveal. <laughs> All right, bro. All right, I'll let you go. All right, see you.